police. Tell the sheriff I shot him. Who? Tell him he's still on the loose. Is this some kind of joke? I've been trick-or-treated to death tonight. You don't know what death is. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to The Pod and The Pendulum, your horror movie podcast dedicated to covering every single horror movie franchise. One movie, sometime, and sometimes more than one episode at a time. Uh, we are back with our deep dive on the Halloween franchise. Uh, I'm your host, Mike Snoonian, joined once again by my co-host, Jerry Smith. Jerry, how are we feeling? I am feeling wonderful. Talking about Halloween 2, more of the night he came home. Yes. And who do we have for <laughs> a guest tonight? We have Brian Kuyper uh, from Ghastly Grinning. Uh, and over on Twitter, uh, longtime listener of the show, which sounds something silly to say because we've been a show under a year. <laughs> but anyways, we're so excited to have him on. Brian, how's it going, man? It's going great. It's just absolutely incredible to be talking to you guys tonight. Oh, Brian's been super supportive of us since yes. we first started the show, and we're really thrilled to have him on to talk Halloween, too. I think it's going to be a lot of fun tonight. Definitely. Yeah. So before we jump in, um, Brian, why don't you give us your thoughts on on Halloween one and jumping into the second one and just your overall thoughts on the franchise as a whole? Like, what does the Halloween series mean to you as a whole? Well, Halloween, I tend to agree with Jerry. I think it is a perfect movie in so many ways. And um, it really it exists in its own space. It does not need a sequel, in my opinion. That being said, I love most of the Halloween movies anyway. I Halloween 2 was actually the first one I saw. So um, it's the one that introduced me to all the characters. Unfortunately, there are other things that it introduced me to that I didn't realize didn't really work until later, but I'm sure we'll get into those things. And, uh, mm -hmm. and you know, Halloween means a lot to me as well because I introduced my son to it uh, last weekend. Uh, we watched the first one together, and uh -huh. it was incredible. He's nine years old, and I wasn't sure how it was going to play for him, to be honest. Mm -hmm. But he loved it. He absolutely loved it. Um, isn't isn't that like the coolest thing in the world? Like was, I, I, I love doing that so much. Yeah, it was absolutely incredible. And the tension worked. I sort of tested out uh, how the tension was playing with him. Um, the scene where Annie walks up to the hedge after they've seen Michael disappear behind it. Uh, just before she got to the hedge, I sort of booed at him. And he went <laughs> through the ceiling. Yeah, that's he said that was the that was the moment that scared him the most was me. Uh, but uh, he really loved it. He said it was his favorite um, uh -huh. favorite movie he'd ever seen after watch after watching it last weekend. Uh -huh. So yeah, that was just incredible. That's excellent. Yeah. yeah, it's a movie that I think it. You know, I think like all great movies, they still even though it's forty years old, it still holds up to this day. Um, it's you know, contrary, contrary to what Screen Rant says. <laughs> oh. Yeah, I mean, you know, I was just going into that. I mean, spoiler alert, there is an article that's up um, on ScreenRant.com, Five Reasons John Carpenter's 
Halloween has aged poorly. And to be fair, in five reasons, it's timeless as well. So, um, and it's one of these articles where you have to like click through a slideshow that has a lot of advertisements for it. Um, and it's really, you know, like it's, there's not much to the article. It's like one sentence on every single thing. Um, it's not the really dialogue. Good. The dialogue is borderline awful. Was one of the one of the ones. <laughs> and to be fair, I mean, like that would be if you're going to make one argument against the movie. I think you can say that, like the dial, like any dialogue of its day, and it's not like you know, Carper doesn't have like the best dialogue. He's not writing for teenage girls. I think all the he, you know what I mean. Like his his his. Strengths was in the the setting up the movie and the scares and the tension. No, totally, um, totally. I, I agree. Deborah Hill, I, Deborah Hill uh-huh. did the bulk of the dialogue for the uh, young women in the movie, and I mean, like, look, PJ Souls was in some classic movies, but she's not exactly Meryl Streep. Um, <laughs> there's only so many ways you can deliver the line. Totally. totally. <laughs> before you just want to put an ice pick through your eye. Um, you know, uh, to this day, I think that is the best and the worst drinking game that I ever played when I did drink regularly was take a shot every time she said totally. Like half oh, ha- yeah, half an hour into the movie, I'm, you know, you're gone. Yeah, Must have been just stumping around <laughs> at that point. Um, and I think we had said like last week, like you could look at Halloween 1 and if you took out a little bit of the nudity – in that movie, you would have a PG-13 movie in 2019. Oh, yeah. And that's not a detriment to the movie, I think, like all the setup works overall. So some of the, you know, the other things are saying, like, you know, what hasn't aged well, the mythology. Well, there's really no mythology in Halloween 1. Yeah, I didn't um, get that one at all. Yeah. That's you, it's The mythology happens in Halloween 2 and through four, 6 and is and where six. it gets really, 6 yeah. is where it gets really terrible. Right. Um, you know, it's, you know, they're saying the stocking scenes of age and that's the, like, how, how do you, I don't know how you can make that. I, that was, case. that was the most ridiculous one to me because, um, my son, uh, I pointed out to him the moment the shape is waiting outside of Lori's classroom. Mm-hmm. And as soon as he saw him and he saw the station wagon, he started seeing that station wagon even where it wasn't there. Right. Mm-hmm. I mean, so those stalking scenes are completely effective still. Well, I, I think that uh, what the article said, and I'm not going to spend too much time on the article because I really don't want to give them the, you know, the attention. But, uh, you know, mentioning that the stalking scenes don't work as well and, you know, this and that. And kind of what we said on the last episode, that if you take the nudity out, it kind of maybe would have been a PG-13 film because it's more about suspense, mm-hmm. you know. And I think that that leads into this episode where you go into Halloween 2 and it's the kind of opposite at times. I mean, you know, and we'll get into this more about the, you know, the, the films of the time the Halloween 2 came out. But Halloween 2, right from the beginning, it's a completely different game, you know? Everything mm-hmm, from, so. I mean, the, the classic score has been updated in more of a synthesizer approach, uh, courtesy of, you know, Alan Howard. Uh, you know, there's gore, There's a lot of gore. I mean, even the nudity is a little more in your face. Uh, I mean, right from the beginning, you know, it, it is a continuation of the first film. You know, like the tagline says, more of the night he came home. 
But in a lot of ways, it even though it takes place the same night, it's a very different film. Absolutely. Absolutely. Um, in starting with, like, let's talk a little bit about the genesis of Halloween, too, because we're still at an age, late 70s, early 80s, where even when you have a successful movie, it's no guarantee that a movie is going to be sequelized, let alone become a franchise with 11 entries in it. Like, you know, it seems weird nowadays where it seems like all that anyone is really interested in is, you know, creating their own intellectual property or adapting intellectual property where you can get like at least three movies out of something. Like if you have something where you can't get at least three pictures out of it, no one's interesting, interested in making it. Or Mm -hmm. you have something like the conjuring universe, um, where you have this really fun movie like The Conjuring, and all of a sudden you have all of these things that are offshoots of it, and it's a little bit exhausting. Um, oh, it's, even it's very much so. I mean, you get like a minor character in those movies to get their own movies at this point, you know? Right, right. Exactly. You know, we see that sometimes that works really well. I mean, The Conjuring movies are licensed to print money at this point, and then you have like the dark universe where you try to take the classic Universal monsters and make them like the Avengers, and that didn't quite go. Oh. Well, I think so I well. think what's interesting. I think what's interesting about the genesis of Halloween too. Uh, it's a couple things. One, everyone assumed that the first film ended with the idea of making a sequel, and that's very that's not the case whatsoever. That was a, a definitive ending to that film it wasn't like oh you know let's go on another you know let's have more exploits of what michael myers is doing it's no he was pure evil you know that was the end and that and nobody wanted to make a sequel carpenter nobody wanted it it was a 100 percent urban yoblins the producer was just like we need more money we need to do this again i was gonna say one man one man definitely (laughs) wanted to make a sequel that is urban yoblins yeah but even Erwin Yoblins didn't particularly care for the script when it was delivered. Right. He didn't, but he liked what the script gave him after the fact, which is that more is money true. in his <laughs> pocket. Very true. Um, well, very true. So even oh, go ahead. So Carpenter's no, early idea of like they were going to do more Halloweens was very much like let's do what we did with Halloween three. Like he was on board with more Halloween movies, but he thought like let's do an anthology and explore a different facet of the holiday every year yeah. or every fall. Like let's do doesn't necessarily have to be like a man stalking a babysitter. It could be what we saw with Halloween three. Um, it could be any aspect of the holiday overall. So Carpenter was more on board with that, but all of a sudden you have this little movie that makes $70 million worldwide. You know, it beats its budget by about 20 times, um, which is unheard of in its day. It's like, well, we gotta. We have to milk that cash cow even more. So, the idea early on from Irwin Yablins was like, no, we're going to do more movies about Michael Myers. Mm-hmm. That and the initial uh, idea for the sequel, once they did do it, was, is an interesting one. Uh, you know, they wanted to have, a, you know, a couple or a few years later, Laurie's kind of living in this high rise apartment building you know full of apartments and michael comes back to stalker which i mean if you think about it that's kind of the plot of someone's watching me the john carpenter film Mm -hmm. you know so it's kind of interesting to watch someone's watching me and then kind of read over the genesis of what halloween 2 originally was going to be and but i do think it's very interesting that they kind of went the direction that they did which is 
you know, a lot of sequels, it does take place a little time, you know, a little bit after, but I, I've even since childhood, I've always found it incredibly fascinating that Halloween two ends the moment the first film or begins the, the moment the first film ends. And I think that's really unique. Mm-hmm. I think so too. I was wondering, do either of you guys know of anything that had done that before? Or even many that have done that since. Really, Rocky Two is the first movie right. that jumps to mind where it. it but That's even that movie's yeah. not a continuation of just the night after the fight. Like it picks up with the first movie leaves off, but then it jumps forward in time um, after the fact. So there are. That's the first movie that jumps to mind but i mean there are not a lot of sequels to even discuss during this time let alone ones that just immediately pick up and start telling the same story that's very true that, and what i think is incredibly uh fascinating and i've used that word twice so i apologize but uh <laughs> is that in most sequels i mean it some time has passed and the characters have kind of slowly gotten over or tried to get over the kind of trauma of what happened in the first time setting Halloween to the moment, the first one ends right from the beginning, you're dealing with these people who are very much still right in the middle of dealing with that night. I mean, right from the beginning, you know, when Loomis goes outside and, you know, sees Michael's not there and the neighbor, the neighbor, you know, basically, you know, is this a trick? You know, I've, I've been, you know, basically questioning. Yeah. And then Loomis looks at him like, I'm going to beat the shit out of you, guy. Like, you, you know, right. like, yeah. is. Yeah. exactly. Like, yeah. you have no idea what I've been dealing with <laughs> this mm-hmm. entire day. So I think that's interesting. You know, Lori has gone through absolute hell that night and she's having to deal with it while having a hurt leg, you know, and being drugged up by easily. You know, you say Loomis is the worst doctor, but I beg to differ. <laughs> the doctor in Halloween 2 is drunk off his ass the entire movie. I mean, in the TV version, he's sitting on a chair, like, rocking back and forth because he has such a, uh, like, a blackout drunk headache. Like, well, I definitely want to talk a little bit about him um, when we talk about the TV version and some of the ways the characters are fleshed out a little bit more because i think that it's a really good point like you really only see him for one scene in this and he's like he's completely rip-roaring drunk but in his defense like he was off duty he was at the country club for a little halloween party and he was called in to duty because they apparently could not get a hold of anybody else so to be fair i mean the fact that he's even called in is kind of ridiculous was he at the orgy too? What orgy? <laughs> no, <laughs> just just that theory that all of the parents go to that like that key party basically. Oh, a key party, the one oh, I you know, like, that's where that's where that's where Lori's parents are. Mm. You know, he even mentions them when he comes in. Uh, the doctor comes in to the hospital. He mentions yeah. that her parents were there too. Yeah. Um, so, so we'll definitely get into that a little bit when we talk about like the character. I, I think like the difference between like the Rosenthal cut uh, or the TV version and what Carpenter went back and did after. It's pretty fascinating because I think if you you could look at the two versions of the movie and with a little bit of editing have like one almost perfect little slasher movie overall. And I think there are flaws in both of them overall. Um, some of which are, especially in the Rosenthal cut are really egregious, but then there are some things about it to really enjoy as well. Um, 
But by this time, you know, so Carpenter, so basically Carpenter is adamant he's not going to direct Halloween 2. He's like, I've already said everything I can say about it. He come, he agrees to write the movie. He actually gets sued by Yoblins because after agreeing to do The Fog and Halloween 2, he then goes ahead and I think he's, is it Warner? I'm trying to remember I the company. I that... Avco Embassy. Okay. Uh, he, yeah, so so he, uh, he makes an agreement. Well, apparently Yoblins had a conversation mm-hmm. on the airplane with the head of Avco embassy <laughs> and said, Hey, we're going to be doing, uh, I'm going to be doing the fog and Halloween two with John Carpenter. And then he finds out, um, a, from that guy later is that <laughs> said, yeah, we're doing the fog with John Carpenter. Mm-hmm. Wait, what? So we sued them yeah. both. Yeah. And he's like, Oh, so, you know, we did a lawsuit and we got the agreement that he would do the fog with them and Halloween two with us. I'm like, so, the same agreement you had beforehand. Like it didn't seem like Yablins really wins anything from that lawsuit, except, you know, what was already agreed upon that and the working condition. I mean, you know, maybe I'm just speaking for myself, but if I was John Carpenter and someone sued me and then basically I had to work with them again, it probably Mm -hmm. wouldn't have been the best experience, you know? Well, you know, I think Carpenter knew a little bit too. He had kind of had like a handshake agreement. So, it, what is interesting is basically what's interesting about Halloween too is, aside from Carpenter being in the director's chair, the whole band is back together again. You have mm-hmm. your principal actors again. Dean Cundy is back um, as your director of photography. Carpenter is writing the movie. Carpenter and Hill are producing the film. So by and large, like it's the same, it's the same production house. By and large, you have all the same principal players involved in the sequel again. And I think the unsung hero of Halloween two is Dean Cundy because I really think that the way he shoots this movie, it very much allows for one continuous experience it it's not jarring like i enjoy halloween 4 i think it's a fun movie i can understand why it's for some people it's their favorite of the series and i can understand why but it doesn't look like a halloween movie well i've i've always said and uh you know i i love halloween 4 with a passion is actually one of my 10 favorite films of all time but with that being said i think there have only been one and a half true truly great sequels to Halloween. And that is uh, David Gordon Green's film and about mm-hmm. 75% of Halloween 2. Sure. You know, I love mm-hmm. Halloween 4 with a passion, but I don't think it's a good Halloween sequel. I just no. think it's a good movie. You know what I mean? Yeah, it's a fun slasher yeah, I get movie. That. That's, I think that's so. a very valid point. And wh- I was going to add in exactly what you were saying about Dean Cundy. He is the, he is the glue that uh, makes this a cohesive experience is one um, to be able to, it, it looks enough like the first movie because of him. Right. Yeah. And the main reason Carpenter decides to come back and write the movie, it's not because he has this great idea. Like, you know what? I know exactly where we're going to take the movie now. Um, it's, he's like, no, I, he made almost nothing for the first Halloween. I mean, he was basically a director for hire. He got a salary, um, I don't think he had any points for the profit of the movie. So he's like, screw it. I'm going to get paid. You know what? He gets a lot of shit over that. Carpenter does to this day, you know, and people kind of think he comes off as like this curmudgeon, you know, just give me the, the money. But you know what? Like he's earned it. 
Like, right. Why? Why? Why wouldn't he be able to hold his hand and say, "You know what? Put a paycheck in it." Yeah, like, absolutely. I, and and I I completely agree. And what's interesting is, you know, like I said, nobody wanted to make the second film, and mm-hmm. even to this day, Carpenter kind of regrets most mm-hmm. of the decisions he came up with as far as writing. I mean, the the sister twist was very much. Uh, I've had too much to drink. I don't know where I'm going with this. Let me throw something in there. And even Carpenter to this day regrets that very mm-hmm. much because th- that's the thing that I just can't get on board with with Halloween 2 is because that one small decision rendered the entire series so problematic for me right. for like years only to be finally, finally corrected with David Gordon Green's film. Absolutely. You guys talk amongst yourself for 30 seconds. I'm going to remove the rabbit from this room because she is chewing on everything and I think it's coming up in the background. So discuss mm-hmm. your feelings on Halloween 2 amongst yourself for one moment while I <laughs> bounce a right. So, Brian, I, I do have to ask, you know, seeing or being that you saw Halloween 2 first, yes. uh, was it interesting to like experience the film? without having seen the first movie i mean the second one kind of gives that kind of cliff notes you know what happened at the very end at the beginning of the film but not knowing everything that came before it was it kind of uh, confusing or was it easy just to get on board you know it, it it's a straightforward enough story that it worked um mm-hmm. we didn't need well really you know loomis and a lot of his dialogue fills in some of those holes you know, I yeah. was his doctor for 15 years. He killed his sister. You know, all these things that um, we we knew a little of the of the mythology going into it. I think, I think we knew about um, him killing his sister, and then you know coming back to um, coming home to kill again. You know, um, mm-hmm. so so there wasn't, as I recall, it, we were just able to follow it and. Honestly, the movie Halloween 2 is a uh, decent slasher movie, so it follows a lot of the same tropes of any slasher sequel that you don't necessarily need to um, have seen the first one. Yeah. Like if you're talking Friday the 13th Part 2, you don't necessarily have to have seen Friday the 13th to follow it. Well, Friday the 13th 2, in a lot of ways, I, I, I. Sometimes think that maybe some of the people that made Friday Thirteenth Two hadn't seen the first film. <laughs> yeah, I think you might be right about that, especially that beginning. <laughs> yeah, no kidding. Oh, but uh, yeah, I. <laughs> but uh, one of the things that's sort of sort of funny is I, I saw. Okay, I, I really enjoyed Halloween Two for seeing it. This was probably not only the first. This wasn't only the first Halloween movie I'd seen. It was definitely the first slasher I'd seen. Oh, and, that's great. And maybe the first, like, real R-rated horror film that I'd seen. I'd seen mm-hmm. Jaws and uh, 2 and 3 as well. I may have seen one or two Stephen King adaptations. So, I mean, those would count, of course. But, um, but not – I hadn't seen a lot when I saw Halloween 2. So was it, it its uh, was it during its theatrical run or, or home video or because I on saw. Home. Go ahead. Oh no, I was just gonna say that uh, as a kid, I saw Halloween two for the first time on TV. So the TV cut was actually the first version that I I experienced, and and like later on, you know, watching Halloween two on like VHS and stuff, I was really confused why Jimmy didn't pop up in the ambulance at the end. 
Oh, right. Yeah, of course. Well, one of the things, I saw it on VHS. I saw it at a friend's, like, just an overnight sleepover party kind of thing we had. It was me and maybe two other two other guys hanging out watching scary movies that his mom picked up from the library for us to watch. And so uh, Halloween 2 was one of them. And I was thinking to myself, oh, I kind of want to see the first one first. But since I'm here, you know, um, we'll watch Halloween 2. Um, and within days, I saw the first one. Mm-hmm. And, I, and I liked it more. Um, but what was funny, when you talk about the TV cut, um, I went out and bought the first Halloween on VHS um, pretty quickly after that. And um, little did I know I had bought the TV cut of the first Halloween of the first film. So the sister twist was part of my watching Halloween Mm -hmm. for years. Yeah, because they have that that scene that kind of alludes to the sister thing. Exactly. they filmed they filmed a lot of the TV stuff for the home video release of the first or the TV release of the first film. They filmed it during uh, the Halloween two era. So, exactly. yeah, that's interesting. So so I so the sister twist didn't bother me uh, until I started seeing the theatrical cut of Halloween, um, which was quite a it was like the 20th anniversary. I finally bought Halloween again because it was my favorite movie. And mm-hmm. I, for the first time since I, since the, since the first time I saw it, I actually saw the theatrical cut, and was confused as to why certain scenes were missing and other scenes were extended, and you know, um, mm-hmm. I, and so only later did I realize that, oh, for, you know, five or six years I'd been watching the TV cut of Halloween. Mm-hmm. Um, so seeing it later, the, the, you know, the proper, uh, the first film properly, you know, without the sisters thing, was it easy to kind of get on board with the, the original intention of the first film or like, was that something that you enjoyed more about it? Yes, very much. So I think when I, uh, would, cause I was, uh, I'm, I, I was born the year the Halloween came out. So I was 20 years old when I bought the, um, the theatrical cut and actually watched it and started watching it over and over and over again. And, um, and I started to realize the intention was that Michael was doing this just because there was not, there was not this, um, motivation of, family or whatever behind it it was yeah. just because he's evil and, i think that um, that's uh, i think that that's one of the things that i find it sometimes hard to get on board with the second one is because the first film is so just genius in that that there's no reason for this crazy person going after her you know whereas the, the second one for the most part, you get that same vibe, but every once yeah. in a while, I mean, Sister Angle thrown in, you know, it kind of takes that away because it's like, I don't want to know why he wants to do it because that's not it's as scary a, to me, you know? And er, earlier in the in Halloween 2, there's a great moment where Laurie is talking to Jimmy and just says, why me? You know, yeah. why is he after me? And it sucks that that has an answer. It shouldn't yeah, because, have an answer. 
that's terrifying if you think about it. I mean, you know, I, I don't let my kids kind of go off on their own, mostly because it's 2019, you know? Right. But the idea that, you know, my my oldest is going to turn 18 in March. But the idea of, like, my daughter getting off of high school and walking home and have someone follow her for no reason whatsoever terrifies me, you know? Well, and yeah. and the, the kind of thrown-in twist of the second film, it's just like, oh... Like he's just coming back just to kill, you know, like it's, it feels weird, but what's funny is it feels, it feels like, you know, John Carpenter had, uh, had written himself into a corner Mm -hmm. and seen the empire strikes back and said, wow, it, it worked there. Maybe I could do something like that here. And, and it, it, you know, after, you know, uh, and, and it, and it, it just doesn't. It just doesn't. What's, um, what's funny is my brother was born the year that Halloween came out, and I was born the year Halloween 2 came out. So okay. growing up, growing up, it was always like a just a recurring joke where he's like, yeah, well, you know, I'm like Halloween. I'm great. And you're kind of like Halloween 2, you know? You're, <laughs> you're, you're okay, but not you're, as great as I am. <laughs> sure. <laughs> yeah. Um, well, the thing is, I, I had such a... I, I and I still have a real soft spot for Halloween too. Mm-hmm. I I uh, you know with it being the first t- real horror movie I saw, you know, without my parents, without uh, anything else, it was just like and I, I had been I had been obsessing over these kinds of movies. You know, I was drawing pictures of Michael Myers and Freddy Krueger and Jason, and I hadn't seen any of the movies. Mm-hmm. Um, be, you know, partially because you know my my parents were were concerned about about me seeing um, some of them. Uh, slasher movies were not uh, particularly looked highly upon, um, but you know it's not that my parents forbade it exactly. It's hard to describe, but you know they they didn't let us watch a lot of R-rated movies, especially without them. Um, well, that and it was that was during the whole satanic panic era. So I mean, it, I was, think it was every parent I think was concerned at that point. You know, yeah, yeah, and you know, um, it, it was, you know, but when when I started being able to see them, they didn't, they never forbade me from seeing mm-hmm. anything. So uh, I mean, there were obviously there were certain things that they would say, uh, maybe not this one. But um, for the most part, they were fine. You know, I saw I saw Nightmare on Elm Street not long after that, which mm-hmm. is a far more intense movie than Halloween Two in a lot of ways. Um, and uh, and they were okay with that. Mm-hmm. So, um, but yeah, like I said though, Halloween Two really has a I have a soft spot for it. I I enjoy it still, uh, even though they're things about it that just bug the hell out of me. Um, You know, I I think some of the greatest, I think some of the greatest movies are like that, you know, like Mm -hmm. I have fundamental issues with Halloween too. With with that being said, I enjoy the hell out of it for the most part, you know, and it's, it's kind of like what we were saying a little while ago. I mean, very few sequels have even returning tones or themes to them, let alone almost an entire creative team. I mean, you know, not just Dean Cundy, but Carpenter and now Alan Howard's helping out. You know, Jamie Lee comes yeah. back, you know, yeah. uh, Nancy Loomis comes back for that cameo, even if it's just Annie's dead body. You know, Charles right. Seifert comes back. 
You know, yeah. you have all these people from the first film to where it feels seamless between the two. I you know, agree. and even, I, even the even the nurse from the first movie. Exactly. Uh, and I think you know. that's one of the elements that makes it incredibly easy to get on board with the second one right from the beginning. There are very few things that take me out of it. And uh, other than the sister one, the only thing that I, I just find myself like going, what? When I watch it is seeing Dana Carvey just stand around for like a scene or two. <laughs> <laughs> what? I miss I, He's I miss one of the that? paramedics, I believe. He's right? one of the paramedics. No, no, How did no. I miss that? He's uh, no, the the newscaster lady. He's oh. her assistant. He's wearing a blue oh. trucker hat. Yeah, Dana. That's Dana Carvey. <laughs> no, what? what? Uh, how many times have I seen Halloween two and never known that? That's amazing. Well, well, growing up, I was always like a kid that watched the entire credits because, I mean, yeah. even from a young age, you know, I was so just enamored by filmmaking that I just wanted to know everyone. So, I mean, as someone that grew up loving SNL, like the first time I saw Dana Carvey's yeah. name credits, I was just like, "What the hell is going on?" What's wow. interesting, too, at this time is how the, the shift of the movie – this is very much a Loomis movie and less mm-hmm. of a Laurie movie. Yes, By this is. time, they were almost very lucky to get Jamie Lee Curtis to come back um, because by this time now, you know, she had gone on – she had done The Fog, Prom Night, Terror Train. Um, she was starting to get, you know, in a lot more movies overall, and she was – after Halloween 2, going to leave horror behind for a long time. I mean, really, until H2O, she's really going to leave genre films behind at that point. Um, so she comes back. She has a horrible wig, um, which is one of the things everybody talks about. But the other thing, like, no one ever talks about is, like, what accent is she doing in this movie? Like, it sounds like she has a mouthful of syrup every time she delivers a line okay. in Halloween 2. It's so weird. To me, to hear I've her always speak. thought I've always thought it was because of the crazy medication. Because I don't know if you guys have been on Dilaudid, mm-hmm. <laughs> but I have after like a really bad injury, and that's basically what they put on the market when heroin was made uh, illegal by <laughs> the medical community. So I mean, after a lot of trauma and pain, if you're on Dilaudid, like you sound like basically like Laurie sounds in Halloween too. So that's always where I, you know, my mind went with it. I've always thought that Laurie just doesn't have a lot to do in this movie. Right. And uh, this viewing, it made me realize uh, it seems that uh, Deborah Hill just had less to do with the mm-hmm. creation of the script this time around. Because I think if she had um, Laurie, we might see, we might have it be a little bit more Laurie's movie and a little bit less Loomis's movie, like mm-hmm. more like the first one. But I, you know, mm-hmm. I don't know. I don't know. That's just a theory. There's also subtle differences just in the uh, execution. And I don't I don't just mean the difference between directors of, you know, Carpenter and Rick Rosenthal. But, you know, the worst that we got as far as like really asshole male characters in the first one was, you know, Bob just making really stupid, Mm -hmm. inappropriate jokes. But the character, the character of Bud in Halloween, Two, even as a kid, He is a misogynistic piece of shit, you know, and even as a kid, like that just didn't sit well with me because it was just like, how does this guy have a job? Like, I remember being like seven and eight asking my grandma that, like, what did someone fire him for that? She's like, oh, amazing grace. Come sit on my face. Don't make me cry. I need your pie. But why don't you just shut up? 
he was the he was the guys in junior high and high school that I knew that uh, had these really great girlfriends, not just like pretty, but really nice girlfriends. And I would just ask, why are you with this asshole? Mm-hmm. You know, the, the, that's what it felt like watching it this time. Bud just reminded me of all these guys that is like, why do you put up with someone treating you like this? I don't get it. Well, probably because the hospital has to have at least a couple employees. <laughs> right. Jeez, it was. Yeah. This, so, this is an empty, empty, empty hospital. It is. Yeah, there is nobody like, I think there. Every employee of that hospital was probably at that orgy. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah it's it's interesting because uh jamie lee has the one thing she does in the last act you get to see like how resourceful laurie strode is again mm-hmm. and how resilient yes. she is again overall um that's like the one thing that the movie really has going for it overall in terms of like laurie's participation in the movie um one thing before we even get to like the you know, we haven't really even spoken about Rick Rosenthal and what he tries to do with the movie and how successful that is. What I think Halloween 2 does really well is it captures the spirit of Halloween night better than the original Halloween does. Oh, yeah, definitely. Yeah. Everything yeah. from uh, Ty Mitchell and the razor blade in his mouth. Razor blade. Exactly. You have mm-hmm. the urban legends of like, you know, you got to check your candy or someone's going to put razors in it to just like, I think there's like, it's more festive overall. It looks more like fall overall. And I think in part it benefits from the fact that the whole movie takes place over the nighttime as opposed to following the characters around from sunrise to sunset overall. Um, so I do think this feels more like the Halloween season in terms of a movie. What's interesting is if I'm I could be wrong, but if I remember correctly, Halloween two was Rick Rosenthal's first feature too. It was correct. You know, so, like mm-hmm. no god. So Rosenthal's brought in because basically, as Carpenter says, like I'm not gonna direct this movie. I don't care. Like you know, I mean, I'm sure he had a price in mind, and if they weren't gonna meet that price, Carp, you know, Carpenter wasn't gonna direct. If they had met it, I'm sure Carpenter would said, eh, why not? But I guess Rosenthal had the same agent as John Carpenter, or they worked for the same agency, and there was a short film that Rosenthal had done that Carpenter had really liked. Uh, They said, sure, let this guy direct overall. And Rosenthal had said, you know, I really want to create the same atmosphere that John Carpenter did with Halloween. I really want to recreate that movie as close as I can in terms of atmosphere, tone, intention, the problem is John Carpenter is John Carpenter and Rick Rosenthal is not John Carpenter. I don't so. even think Rick Rosenthal likes being Rick Rosenthal <laughs> because no, no, no. Like I have a story actually that will make that's like make sense mm-hmm. of that. I was in LA a few years ago for a screening and I was downtown Hollywood and I was in a car, uh, underground parking paying for my parking. And I saw Rick Rosenthal walking around. And, you know, being a, a fan of Halloween 2 and stuff, I went up to him. I was like, hey, uh, you're Rick Rosenthal, right? And he looked like somebody had, like, found him out, you know? And he was just <laughs> like – and he came up with the worst lie on the spot. He goes, uh, no, but I teach his son in film school. And I'm like, that's the best you could come up with? And he right. just, like, booked – he just booked it. <laughs> <laughs> He just ran away. I mean, well, really. Originally, 
originally though wasn't uh, as I understand Tommy Lee Wallace was going to direct Halloween. Correct. Yeah. He turned it down. Yeah, and he, he didn't want to do more of the same. Mm-hmm. He didn't. Well, he didn't like the script. Yeah. Yeah, that's the big thing is Carpenter turns in the script. And I think it's a really good idea to follow the same night overall. Like, I really like how it plays out. But even Yablons and I was like, yeah, it's really pedestrian. Like, it didn't have that same zing that the first movie had overall. Um, A big reason for that is because the first film, I mean, you know what I mean? You can't, like you said, you can't recreate that. It was like lightning in a bottle, like to expect a sequel to that, you know, I love David Gordon Green's film very much, but is it John Carpenter's Halloween? Hell no. You know what I mean? Like I, for anyone to expect something on that level, like, you know, I think they were setting themselves up for a disaster. Any way you look at it. Well, there's really, in my opinion, no way to follow Halloween one and stay true to what I think the ending is trying to say. Because to me, the ending is Michael gets shot. He falls out of the window. His body disappears, not because he gets up and walks away, but because now it's like the evil is released from mm-hmm. that shell and it's and is everywhere now. That's why they're showing all those different spots that he'd been throughout the night. Uh, and you hear that breathing and, and it's just there's no escape. The shape is everywhere now. Mm-hmm. And that's and, that's a perfect setup to yes. run with that and do an anthology every sequel. Exactly. You know, to to say, you know what, it made a lot of money, you know, with time, word of mouth made it very popular, made a lot of money. Let's recreate that. You can't recreate something like that. You know, I do think that they did an excellent job trying to do that, and it's most definitely an entertaining film. But right mm-hmm. from the beginning, they kind of put Michael back into that uh they try to put Michael in to that role that he was in the first film prior to the ending, you know, the walking around human walking around thing, but he just took six slugs to the chest and he's still, how do you take six slugs to the chest and get even more powerful and violent than you were before getting blasted, you know? Right. Well, he actually takes seven at the beginning, if you count. It, yeah. In the seven. Yeah. The gunshot. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, <laughs> So uh, the the seven gunshots at the beginning of Halloween two, um, but yeah, you have to you have to if you're gonna make a continuation of Halloween one with Michael Myers, um, you kind of negate uh, the message of the first movie. And one of the th- one of the the things that uh, I noticed this time that's very much um, sort of plays into that is the fact that there's one mention of the boogeyman in Halloween Mm two. And it's from the closing scene of Halloween Mm -hmm. where she asks, what's the boogeyman? And he says that was there's, so it's like, it's like Michael's no longer the boogeyman. Mm -hmm. He's Michael Myers now. Well, I think, and I think that's in part too, though, because there aren't any children in this movie. Like the boogeyman is very much a concept. That's going to be familiar to young children, but you're not going to have, you know, number one, like most of the people in the hospital never even realize that someone is in there stalking them. Like they are completely unaware that there is someone else in there for one. 
one, so they wouldn't even know what they would be speaking of. But also, like, even if you're aware, like, if you're a grown adult, you're not going to be referring to, Absolutely. you know, Michael Myers as the boogeyman. But that of does course. raise a good point. Like, this is not no longer the shape. This is Michael Myers. Well, that and I think an- another reason that maybe Halloween 2 suffered is because even thematically, it's a very different film. The first film, in so many ways, is about pure evil killing, killing innocence. You know, whether it's the you know, there's teenagers being murdered by evil. You know, Tommy and Lindsay being stalked by evil. Where you come to the second film, and it's like adults in a hospital. You know, like it's fun, but at the same time, like. You know what I mean? Like any movie can kill off adults. It's not scary, but any kid or teenager being stalked by someone like that chills me to the bone, you know? Mm-hmm. Yeah. So I think the, the big difference overall, and I think it speaks to Carpenter's commercial instincts overall. The big reason Halloween two is such a dramatic shift in tone and just in terms of the violence of the movie and the gore of the movie where violence and gore really re- replaces the tension and suspension is it speaks to Carpenter as a commercial filmmaker. Um, yeah. Because Halloween is launched, it makes a ton of money, and then after that, the floodgates open. You you could say, like, Black Christmas is maybe the first real slasher movie overall, but Halloween is the movie that really kicks off that trend. Um, And by 1981, you're seeing movies like My Bloody Valentine, The Prowler, The Burning, um, Dead and Buried. It's very much the Savini era. Exactly. What um, and you have two movies called Friday the Thirteenth Part One and Two, where the special effects and the kill scenes are what are front and center. Halloween as a series has never been about the kills. Like it's not like the Friday the Thirteenth movies where you know someone getting an arrow through the neck is the highlight of the movie. It's not like the Nightmare on Elm Street series where you have these really imaginative kills. Overall, you know Halloween when it's at, running at its peak is really about the tension and suspense overall. But Carpenter sees what's going on in there during this time period and says, like, what I did in 1978, that's not going to put asses in seats in 1981. And he might have been right. I mean, if they had done the Rosenthal cut um, and that was went to theaters, like you might have seen like people stay away from the movie. Like, eh, it's just not scary. I, I almost feel like in a lot of ways, Carpenter had the mentality of like, you know what? There is no way that this is going to turn out good. So I'm going to make it turn out profitable. You know sure. what I mean? Yeah. And, you know, I think it backfired on that opinion because, to be honest, I think it's pretty damn great. You sure. know, minus my my minus little, you know, my little issues with it. Mm-hmm. It's a fucking fun. It's a it's a great movie. You know, it is. It is. But the thing is, Carpenter looks at the Rosenthal cut and Jerry, I saw you tweeting the other night saying like you were watching the TV cut. And that's the version I grew up on. And Brian, it very much sounds like same thing for you as well, because that mm-hmm. used to play when I was a young kid that used to play on. Halloween week, like nonstop on the local like channel 56, the local UHF affiliate that played like three or four times every season. No, honestly, honestly, I'm not sure I've seen the uh, TV cut. Mm-hmm. I've only seen, uh, cause I, uh, I saw Halloween two on VHS initially. Mm-hmm. And I, I grew up with the TV cut. of yeah. Two. yeah. I did grow up with the, 
like I was telling Jerry earlier with the because um, I bought it on VHS, not knowing that mm-hmm. Halloween one, uh, I had bought the TV cut. So I I watched the uh, the TV cut of Halloween one mm-hmm. uh, many many times without sure. realizing it. And uh, but I'd only ever seen the uh, theatrical cut of Halloween two, and uh, mm-hmm. when I watched it um, in preparation to. Uh, talk with you guys. I only had time to watch the theatrical cut. Sure. Uh, and I think you haven't seen the TV cut. Mm-hmm. I still haven't. I have it because I have the <laughs> I, I I have the wonderful I have the Scream Factory whole you know oh, yeah. set. So um, so I've got it in there. I was planning on it. I just ran out of time. Please watch that movie as soon as you can. It oh, is. Oh, I will. It's, it's, it's ripped to say the least. It's interesting just for the dubbing alone, like Bud's dubbing alone um, for whenever he curses is hysterical because it's just so obvious and bad. Um, But the big thing is like Carpenter watches this initial cut that Rosenthal turns in and he famously said, this is as scary as an episode of Quincy MD. Like it's just (laughs) not scary. Well, I mean, the, the the violence is is gone, you know, for the most part, uh, you know, in the in the TV cut or the Rosenthal cut, you know, the uh, the woman that Michael Myers kind of springs up and kills, it just shows Michael just basically looking at her window, and that's the end right. of that scene, yeah. you know, or or oh no, there's tons of it. There's whole scenes out of order in the, mm-hmm. in the TV cut. It's it's such a weird experience. Yeah, there's like suggestions that perhaps like the nurse that he impales from behind maybe lives in the TV cut. But the big thing is like the way the movie is edited, it's very much like the template for what the MPAA does with the later Friday the 13th movies, where like you get maybe one frame of violence and then it cuts away like very, very quickly to the point where it's disorienting and distracting because you can't quite figure out what's going on. And, you know, the original Halloween movie is not a graphic gory movie but it's but it's there is real violence to the kills in that movie um that is part of what makes them so upsetting like pj soul's character in halloween getting strangled is upsetting to watch bob getting lifted by his throat and then pinned to a wall like it's upsetting to watch like annie getting strangled in the car and struggling in the you know, the noises she makes are upsetting to watch here. It's like Michael pops up. There's like one frame of violence, no blood. And then it's like, oop, cut to the next thing at that point. And it's well, jarring. What, what's unfortunate, I think, is, you know, maybe Rick Rosenthal gets a little too much shit. But, I mean, his intention, like you said, was to kind of recreate the tension and the vibe of the first film. The problem is the landscape has changed. So imagine being Rick Rosenthal, loving the first film, wanting to recreate that vibe. And then the creator of the first film comes and is like, nope, we're going to I'm going to direct these, you know, reshots of violence, you know, Mm -hmm. kind of like antithesis of what Rosenthal was going for. Mm -hmm. Now, both cuts, even though Carpenter goes in and he adds this violent footage, both cuts of the movie run about 92 minutes. And the Mm -hmm. problem with Carpenter's cut of the movie, one of the things Rosenthal, I think, did pretty well when you go back and you watch his cut, like the hospital staff gets a lot more time to develop in that movie overall. So you were saying Jerry earlier about the drunken doctor in the movie. There are scenes of him in the Rosenthal cut where he's saying, you know, I hope I did okay by Lori. I did the best that I can. Like he's obviously shaken by, 
his performance as a professional, he has some regret that he wasn't completely prepared to, you know, do an impromptu surgery right away. And you oh, totally. see him really struggle with that. And I think yeah, things he's, like he's that make the movie. He's stressed in that cut. He's sitting down questioning. Like you said, he's stressing over whether he's too drunk or not to do basic mm-hmm. stitches, you know? And I feel like that those little moments of the TV cut or the Rosenthal cut, I think makes the film even better because you get these care you get this character development that you don't quite see in the theatrical. I think where the Rosenthal cut or the TV cut really suffers is its editing. You know, like like the security guard, you know, looking, you know, in in the rooms, you know, before he gets killed. Out of nowhere, you'll see uh, a, a cut of Michael walking from earlier in the film. You know, mm-hmm. or like. You know, the end where Laurie's like like crawling and you see Michael's face, that is put at very early on in the TV cut out of nowhere. Like the edit is the really pulls me out of it. Yeah. The other thing that's really weird, too, like the character of Jimmy and, you know, that the biggest difference in the movie is the fate of Jimmy and mm-hmm. Carpenter's version of the movie. It's implied that Jimmy dies from his injuries when yeah. he slips in the pool of blood. And he has that concussion and then tries to leave. It's implied he dies in his car and the TV version. And it really changes the tone of the ending of the movie overall in the TV version. He still falls and hits his head, but he falls and he hits his head as he's like stalking through the hospital while Lori and Dr. Loomis are fighting Michael. And he's completely oblivious to like the gun shots going off in the hospital he's quietly still stalking through the hallways and that scene existed like 20 minutes ago uh in the actual theatrical cut but it's implied that he lives in the movie overall and it gives it a much more upbeat i mean you could probably say he might be the dad of jamie lloyd in part four if you go by rosenthal's cut of the movie see that's actually seeing halloween four that's what i kind of assumed when mm-hmm. I saw when I saw Halloween four, no. so um, it's easier to it's easier to think when you watch the uh, the TV cut the Rosenthal cut because yeah we do have that ending where Jimmy lives at the end you know Laurie's in the ambulance and you know at the theatrical cut she's in the ambulance and she kind of sees the body and she's freaking out you know but it's dead uh, in in the TV cut you know Jimmy just kind of pops up and she's like uh, you know and then it's like a happy ending and the song yes. starts. Yeah, I've you know? actually I've seen I've seen that scene uh, yeah. on on the uh, on the on the Blu-ray. Um, so I've I've seen the the alternate ending mm-hmm. uh, that was in the TV cut. So um, yeah, I, I know what you're I get what you're saying there. And, and Jimmy Living completely changes the tone of the ending of the movie overall. Like Laurie being silently wheeled out onto the ambulance and then driven off on her own at the end of the movie, especially when you consider, you know, either H2, not really H2O as much, but David Gordon Green's Halloween, how damaged she is 20 years. And I know that Halloween 2 is cut from the continuity at this point, like it's no longer really exists in the timeline. But I think that like the ending of Halloween 2 establishes the tone and the character of what you see with Laurie Strode in 2018. Halloween. Well, there's this idea. There's this idea that you know, if you really think about one or even one and two, and then the David Gordon Green film, you know, she kind of had to deal with this trauma for forty years by mm-hmm. herself. Mm-hmm. You know, 
you know, she had failed marriages and everything else. Whereas like the TV cut of Halloween two, they're almost like smiling, like, yay, we did it. You know, like you would almost mm-hmm. imagine them like hopping up and high five, high, you know, giving each mm-hmm. other a high five and then, you know, the screen pause, you know? Right. <laughs> like, it's, it's very different. Yeah. Um, yeah. Oh, absolutely. I, I definitely agree with that. But like Jimmy, he goes out like such a chump in this in in the theatrical movie. I mean, it's just like slipping on Miss Al, on Nurse Al's pool of blood and then like dying from a concussion in his car when he could just about get away. It's just it's a really mean. And I think it speaks to Carpenter's nihilism as well, because um, Carpenter is not one to shy away from very depressing endings overall. And very depressing fates for characters. You could also tell that, I mean, like you said, the absence of Deborah Hill for the most part. I mean, she was involved, but I don't think she was involved as much because the first film, one of the things that I've always identified with it uh, is how likable the characters are and how relatable Mm -hmm. they are. Whereas in Halloween 2, even I I find it hard even identifying with Lori. It's like I said, she's just kind of there. Nothing really happens, you know, and in the theatrical cut, Jimmy is not really fleshed out that much. So you really don't even care about him. Mm-hmm. Like, yeah, I don't, I, I can't think of a single character in the second film other than the poor girl who was just on the phone with their friend before Michael leaped up and butchered her that you actually care about. Mm-hmm. Well, you and do there, there get, were some, Go ahead. you do get a bit of that on the Rosenthal cut. You do get mm-hmm. more development of the characters like nurse Alves in particular. She's not just this really kind of like nurse Cratchit type of nurse at that point. Like you can see how serious she takes her job. You can see how much care she has for the patients overall. Like, and you can see her be more of a mentor to the people that work underneath her than more of a taskmaster. So I think that, that it, and, uh, no, I was just going to say mm-hmm. that and her annoyance with Jimmy is mm-hmm. fleshed out more in the, the Rosenthal yes. cut as well. Mm-hmm. Because in the theatrical, Jimmy comes in, talks to Laurie, and the nurse kind of snaps at him. Whereas in the, the- or in the Rosenthal or the TV cut, he kind of keeps coming in the room repeatedly back to right. back. Mm-hmm. So finally, Nurse Alves is like, dude, get the hell out of here, basically. Right. Yeah, and that's one of the things that in this watch, I, I thought, well why don't we know her character better? She's a, she's one of the more, um, I don't know. She, she has a more interesting, um, role in, in that movie, um, that never seems to pay off, mm-hmm. uh, in the theatrical cut. Um, it seems like, uh, Jimmy is very used, very little, um, the characters that you actually really enjoy being around, for any length of time just don't seem to have that much time in the movie. Whereas, mm-hmm. you know, someone like Bud seems to have more than he deserves. See, I love Bud. I absolutely <laughs> love the character of Bud. I, you know, I just think that he's a riot. Um, I mean, the amazing grace comes in on my face. <laughs> you know what? Come show me your face. Yeah. yeah. It's, um, you know, and he's quick-witted, and I think he has one of the best deaths in the movie because it's one of the few deaths where there's, like, no score. There's no stinger to it. Um, you know, it's off in the background uh, while, you know, his paramour is sitting in the hot tub and getting ready to get back on the floor. 
floor, you know, Michael comes up from behind and strangles him. And I love the way that plays out. Um, Cause one of the few deaths in the first two movies where you don't have that stinger to make you jump out of your seat. Um, I really love the way that one is set up overall. That, and I think that uh, Bud's death to me is the one death in the film in Halloween two that kind of harkens back to the first film's approach. Mm-hmm. The, the first film it was more about getting rid of the people, play, kind of pranking them and getting rid of them. Mm-hmm. Whereas the second film, in a lot of ways, to me, it feels like a Friday the 13th film. I mean, you get Michael shoving a syringe into someone's eyes. Yes. You know what I mean? It's, that, that shit didn't exist in the first film. Mm-hmm. So I think that that's another thing. And it is a product of its time. I get that. But it, Bud's death especially, I mean, it's just Michael killing him in the background, you know? Right. It, you know, it's not like... Mm-hmm. It's not the like the weirdness that is Michael Myers blowing someone up with electricity in Halloween Six, you know? right. or, or throwing or someone just, into a bunch of power lines, or, or crushing that, their, or, or, or sh- shoving their face into bars until it becomes mush. Mm-hmm. You yeah. know, like like that whole approach of the first film is non-existent by those films, but there are shades of it in Halloween too. And I appreciate that. I just kind of wish there were more of those. See, I did watch the two movies back to back this week. Um, I thought I would get like midway through the second one and then kind of crash. But I ended up like being able to watch and the way, I mean, again, all the credit in the world goes to Dean Cundy and the way he shoots this movie where it does feel like a cohesive story. And when you watch, Watch them back to back, Halloween and Halloween 2. The feeling you get is like a Michael Myers that is getting more comfortable being free, getting more comfortable from no longer being incarcerated at Smith's uh, Smith's Grove. And he's the shackles are off. So in early in the original, all the kills in Halloween, they all take place over like really a 15 minute time period. Um, yeah. And what you have is someone who breaks free. He kills a truck driver in order to get his clothes, but that's more of a crime of necessity at that point. I mean, he could have easily killed Nurse uh, Nurse Marion if he wanted to, but he chose not to. He escaped. And then he spends the majority of the original Halloween movie getting a lay of the land. Really more than anything else is he's getting a feel for what he can get away with. And by Halloween 2... Now he realizes he can pretty much get away with anything he wants, and the shackles are off. And it's a lot like that scene to me. It's like that scene in David Gordon Green's film, that great one-take shot, where like he's like a kid in a candy store. He's like, right. I can kill this person, this person, this person. He just goes bananas. To me, that's the impression I got watching these movies back-to-back over the past week. Oh, most definitely. Uh, that And it, it seems with Halloween, too. Uh, Michael even kills people that I mean it's like you said it, it is almost like the 2018 where he's kind of a, a kid in the candy store he kills people that he doesn't even have to in this one mm-hmm. yeah. you know like because I mean I'm sorry but that security guard's worthless you know right. you, you you didn't even have to kill him mm-hmm. you know and I like that he was actually fleshed out more in the, the TV cut as well but uh, you know like I think that it would be uh, a disservice to talk about Halloween two without talking about the biggest shitty moment in the entire series. And you talk about how Loomis is a, is the worst doctor in the first film. This Loomis is exhibit gets, B. This is exhibit. Loomis, B. I know where we're going. Loomis gets 
fucking poor Ben Tramer murdered for no reason whatsoever. <laughs> yeah. And it, you know, thanks to, thanks to our, you know, previous guest, Nat Brimmer, he had a really interesting theory. And I just, I have to talk about this theory because I think it's great and it's probably bullshit, but it's fun. There's that one shot in Halloween four where they, ha- they use the old mask and it has the blondish hair and the, it didn't work in Halloween four. So they re- reshot it with a new mask, but they have that one sequence where Michael, where the blonde hair throws Loomis through a window basically. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And it's the same mask that Ben Tramer was wearing in two. So Nat has this theory that that moment is just Ben Tramer's ghost getting revenge. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, poor Ben Tramer gets one of the most meanest deaths. He's just stumbling along, having a good Halloween night, has a good buzz going. And here comes this like fucking wackadoo doctor with the gun gun, screaming out of a car just like shouting hooting and hollering you know and 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 how okay who sheriff brackett has has, yeah and sheriff brackett has zero control over what's going on i mean the only thing i can think of is that officer in the car sees this crazy dude in a trench coat waving a gun around (laughs) shooting it in the middle of a crowded street and is immediately like i gotta get there super quick and does not even realize ben tramer's there oh and i wish i wish i could light a grill as fast as ben tramer goes up in flames man because he is like ash within about five seconds of getting smushed it is awful that that and how many adults were at that orgy because (laughs) because they you know they have to get jeffrey kramer's uh kind of corner character or dentist to go look at ben tramer's remains and even He's hungover, you know, and, you know, as a kid, I used to like to connect movies that had nothing to do with each other. So when I saw Halloween two and I saw Jeffrey Kramer in that movie as a kid, I was just like, well, obviously he quit the Amity, the the Amity police department in Jaws Mm -hmm. and he (laughs) moved to Haddonfield to become basically Mm a partner. So, So one of the things I do like about this movie a lot is the return of Sheriff Brackett and how he drops out of the movie after the first act. I think that was a really human touch to the film overall, um, where, you know, he learns about uh, Annie's death and then, you know, has he has to identify her remains. And then it's like, I need to go and tell my wife before. And you just see all this guilt you can see him in that moment second guessing every decision that he made that evening and what it led to. And he's just absolutely wrecked in that moment. Um, I really, really enjoy that, that little brief scene overall. Also, there's a moment that you're, you're talking about. There's a moment where bracket, he does find Annie and he's kind of losing it and he blames Loomis again. Mm-hmm. And Loomis, Loomis tries to stand up for himself, but there's a look in Donald Pleasant's eyes where you can kind of tell for a split second he's asking himself, "Was this all my fault?" Yeah, yeah. I, that's that's one of my favorite scenes in the entire film. Yeah, and this is a point that I argued in the first show, um, saying that if I were Loomis, I would have, you know, he tells the department like, "No, don't tell anyone that this madman is on the loose right now." Just like. 
just send your rinky-dink police force out and cover this whole town. And it seems like Haddonfield's a pretty big town with a pretty tiny police force. You know, what if he had said, cancel Halloween, everyone lock your doors, everyone stay inside? You know, would Annie be alive? Would, you know, would that have happened? Also, with with the body count of Halloween and Halloween 2, you know, yeah, we find out that Loomis survives magically in Halloween 4. And also, you know, Michael, I guess his eyes grew back and everything else. <laughs> but wouldn't Loomis have been arrested in some sort for maybe accidentally playing a part in so many people's murders in those in the first two? If nothing else, he's losing his license to practice medicine. Yeah, I mean, he has that I mean, egg on the on. side of his face and four, mm-hmm. but I mean, that's that's the worst punishment he's had. Right, right. I mean, it's like, well, his role is ceremonial now. Like, he would not even be getting a ceremonial role at this point. Like, <laughs> he would have lost his license, and he would have been disgraced at that point. If it, if it was today, there would have been the biggest, like, hashtag cancel Loomis uh, thing on Twitter, you know? Absolutely, absolutely. So... Oh, man. I don't know how much more. I mean, what is there to say about Halloween 2 that we're not covering right now? It feels like we've covered Uh, a lot of ground, but it also feels like there's a lot more to say about it. I think that there uh, I think that we should definitely discuss and maybe it's just my love for people that play Michael Mm -hmm. Myers. But I do think that Dick Warlock brought uh, a performance to the shape in Halloween 2 that was Mm -hmm. very unique. And even though I have fundamental issues with Halloween 2. I think Dick Warlock is one of my favorite, favorite performers of, of mm-hmm. Michael, like the way he carries himself. Like it, it's, you know, I, I think his Michael can be scarier at times because mm-hmm. of the way he carries himself. Yeah, I would agree with that. Dick Warlock is, you know, he's fantastic uh, stunt man, stunt coordinator. And um, I think he has a lot to offer to that role. Um, and, you know, it's something to say when you're playing such, a role like Michael Myers, where it's silent and you are spending most of the movie walking, um, that to be as effective as he is in this. Well, I also feel like Dick Warlock's kind of an unsung hero in the whole series. I mean, he he had a, a couple roles in the Halloween three as well. You know, like yeah. Dick Warlock added a lot. I mean, he played two characters in Halloween two. You know, he was the shape, and he was also the guy that hit Bane Tramer. <laughs> That's right, yeah. So, yeah. I mean, you know, I, I definitely think Dick Warlock is kind of underappreciated for his contributions to the, not only the series. He definitely brings more of a physicality to the role overall. In the first movie, like, Nick Castle is the shape. He is – that the shape is more of an idea than anything else. Like he's more of a force of nature. He's something that lives in the peripheral of your vision. He's something that lives in the shadows overall. He's like, did I just see something? But then you don't quite see it overall. In this one, like Myers is much more of a physical presence and you really get to see him in action. And I think Warlock managed to still keep that like stalking tendency of Michael at in, in play, but at the same time brings that more, physical presence to the role overall as well. So I do, do think you? that he's phenomenal as, as the shape. And he's a you lot know, of people's what, favorite version of it too. Oh, definitely. Uh, you know, and I, I don't really have too much more to say about the film, but I, I do have a question. What do you think Michael's intentions were breaking into the school and writing Sam Hain on the wall? Like, is he still I, messing around with Loomis at this point? Like, is, is he begging to be caught 
Like, why would Michael? Why would Michael just be like, "Hey guys, check this out. This is why I'm doing what I'm doing." You know. I was trying to even figure out when Michael had time to break into the school to do that. While I was that watching. Was, yeah, that was one of the things when watching it back this week. I really couldn't make heads or tails of that moment overall, except to give more dialogue in the movie. That's only only thing I could think of. Like, why would they go check out the schoolyard to begin with? Like, why would that have been a place that they thought Michael would go? Because um, he would have been, you know, arrested at six years old. He would have been a kindergarten student. Go ahead. No, I was just going to say, I think that those little things that, that we don't understand about the film, mm-hmm. I think that what they could really be... Uh, uh, what really sums that up is, you know, John Carpenter was drinking some really good mm-hmm. beer. <laughs> well, it's, well, he, I think he's also he's interested in in some of the origin of evil stuff. So he talks about, um, you know, like the druidic fire rituals and things like that. Mm-hmm. You know, in the in the in the car at the end uh, with the nurse while she's mm-hmm. trying to say, hey, you know, Lori is Michael's sister, um, but. Uh, there's, but that is kicked off because of you know the writing in blood on the wall, on the chalkboard and and those kinds of things. Um, so that conversation, I, I think, putting that into the movie doesn't happen unless you have the breaking into the school sequence. Well, uh, it takes away it takes away from the, in my opinion, it takes away from the pure evil. You know, Michael just be an evil thing of the first film, mm-hmm. whereas yeah. that like basically. In the second one, by writing Sam Hain and all that stuff, it shows a conscience. You know, it shows Michael as a human being like, you know what? I'm going to take this blood. I'm going to write on the thing to show people this thing. And I really mm-hmm. don't think there's that much thought process going into Michael Myers in the first film. No. And to this day, it really complicates. It's what we see in a lot of horror movies that still exist to this day, where you have a great first entry, a very simple presence, and then – you go in after the fact and you just needlessly complicate things and you mm-hmm. add a lot of mythology and a lot of backstory and a lot of character motivation that doesn't really need to be there to begin with overall. So Carpenter was certainly not the first person to do this. And I think anyone who watches modern horror movies to this day will agree. He is certainly not the last person that is going to needlessly complicate a evil character's backstory to the point where it becomes unrecognizable. Um, and I think Jerry and Brian, to your point saying like, yeah, he is interested in exploring the origins of evil overall, but between this and between adding the, that just that one line, like, Oh my God, it's his sister. Um, you all of a sudden have like really taken what made the shape work so well in the first movie um, and done it a great disservice at that point. Yeah, I, I agree. hundred yeah. percent. Mm-hmm. I think, I think also in that scene, we see the beginnings, maybe the seeds planted of, of the things that really got complicated mm-hmm. and silly, like the cult of thorn and, um, and, and things that just really don't work later. Well, what's so interesting to me too is you know, almost 20 years later or 30 years later when Rob Zombie has a chance to take a crack at the Halloween series and he can do anything he wants with it. There, the gloves are off. Yeah. All he needs yeah. to do, as long as it has Michael Myers in it, that's all that they care about, but he can go in any direction. And what does he do? 
It's his sister. sister. He keeps the sister point of view. And he hammers What's funny is when Zombie was interviewed very early on in the process for Halloween, his remake, he was just like, yeah, I don't even know if I've seen the second one. I'm just going off of the first one. It's Mm -hmm. like, well, obviously you have because the sister. But I think it was – it was just known, I think, even if you hadn't even seen the second one, but you had seen other Halloween movies or haven't have ever read anything about them, um, I think you would know. Although Rob Zombie did grow up in my neck of the woods, and I'm sure he and I at some point were watching Miles Apart, the same Channel 56 Halloween evening screening of Halloween 2. Like, I'm sure some way he saw it. What else is really interesting very quickly is in Rob Zombie's second Halloween – I think, you know, I've only seen that movie a couple times because I just really did not like it. But I loved the opening sequence, which in a lot of ways feels like a remake of Halloween 2. Everything in the hospital in that film, I think, is pure gold. It's only when Lori wakes up and then, what, suddenly she has dreadlocks and is obsessed with Charles Manson and Mm -hmm. there's a white horse involved that that film suffers. But I think think that Rob Zombie was able to do – basically a really good remake of the second one in that opening scene. Mm-hmm. And I think that that's what works about the second one is kind of what he tried to emulate in that. Yeah. Sure. Yeah. Cause then everything after that, and I know we're going to talk about that movie in about eh, seven or eight weeks, but everything after that is not a Halloween movie. It's, mm-hmm. you know, really, which for better or for worse, like I'm probably going to come down more in favor of that movie overall and what it does. Um, but it's I, I you know if somebody were to tell me that you know Rob Zombie's Halloween Two isn't really a Halloween movie, I would be hard pressed to argue uh, against that overall. Like yeah, you can definitely make that argument overall. Um, you know, the, we we mentioned Rick Rosenthal with Halloween mm-hmm. Two, and this is such a weird thing to me even still that Rick Rosenthal would go on to make arguably the worst Halloween film in the franchise with mm-hmm. Resurrection as well. Right. Yeah. It's, it's, it's so interesting that you make a movie that's mm-hmm. almost on par with the first film in some ways. Mm-hmm. And then years later, you make a film that just is just devoid of anything mm-hmm. that made the original work. And, I, you know, it's it's funny because before that entry, you have H2O, which is directed by Steve Miner, who's better known yeah. for directing Friday the 13th, part two and three. Uh, you know, when Rosendahl has gone on to have a, I would, you know, I don't know. I guess successful career uh, oh, directing television. Hmm? I love Bad Boys. This film with Sean Penn. I have never seen it. Oh, um, you, I, you would like it. It's kind of like okay. a grindhouse boys in boys in like kind of juvie kind okay. of. Thing. But his big thing is he's gone on to be like a TV director more than anything else. So, and he is still working to this day and he's someone you bring in. He can, I guess, you know, bring a a TV show in on time and on budget overall, which is, you know, a lot of people can't do. Um, but this movie is successful. Like it has about a two and a half million dollar budget. And most of that budget goes to paying Carpenter, paying um, Jamie Lee Curtis, paying Donald Pleasance, because they were all coming back and they were going to get a substantial boost over the first film. Um, but there's like, you know, it's basically 
a very closed in movie. Like it almost all takes place in this hospital setting. Overall, there aren't any like tremendously big set pieces except for the explosions at the end. And although it doesn't completely mirror the um, success of the first movie, it still makes over 25, close to 30 million in 1981 dollars. So it makes 10 times its budget overall. Um, and Rosenthal still doesn't really have like a big Hollywood career after this. Yeah. Yeah. I think the next film that he went on to make is that one I'm talking about. Bad boys. Bad boys. Okay. So this is what Ebert had to say about the movie. And I find it really interesting. So we talk about how Halloween two was poorly regarded, um, during its time overall. And I think it's only after a lot of lesser sequels that people go on to appreciate what Halloween two brought to the table. Um, so he starts his January 1st. Uh, actually, I think it was a, it's dated January 1, 1981, but this is not an accurate date uh, because the movie doesn't come out till the fall of 1981. So I don't know why it's dated that, but whatever. So it's a little sad to witness a fall from greatness, and that's what we get in Halloween 2. John Carpenter's original 1978 Halloween was one of the most effective horror films ever made. A scarifying fable of a mad dog killer's progress through a small town uh, in Illinois on Halloween. That movie inspired countless imitations, each one worse to the last, until the sight of a woman's throat being slashed is ten more times common in the movies than the sight of a kiss. And then skipping down, Halloween 2 fits this description precisely. It's not a horror film, but a geek show. It's technically a sequel, but it doesn't even attempt to do justice to the original. Instead, it tries to outdo all the violent Halloween ripoffs of the last seven years. The movie does not have the artistry or imagination of the original, but it has new technology. For those like McCartney who keep records of such things, this movie has the first close-up I can remember of a hypodermic needle being inserted into an eyeball. We see that twice. I don't think that's accurate. I'm pretty sure that had been done before in other movies. Um, and I think Zombie would have been out by then where you get a uh, wood splinter going through an eyeball, yep. correct? <laughs> yeah, so... Come on, Ebert. Come on. You can do better. Get it, Be uh, better. Get together, Roger. So, but I disagree with this idea that it doesn't try to do justice to the original. I think that the fact that you have the same creative team, the same artists, you have the same acting troupe between um, Donald Pleasance, who, again, brings his A game to a B movie role. You have Jamie Lee Curtis, who, yes, she does not have a lot to do until the third act, but I think you still see through her performance. And I think, you know, Jamie Lee Curtis really took the role, has always taken the role of Laurie Strode very seriously and held it very dear to her overall. You see how resilient this character is. Uh, you have Sundays. Mm -hmm. I was just going to say, except for H2O, because originally, you know, Carpenter, Deborah Hill were going to be involved with H2O and, and that's why Jamie Lee wanted to do that. But when they, when it paid Carpenter what he wanted and he walked away from H2O, Jamie Lee Curtis famously said that, oh, you know, if it's not going to be what I signed up for, at least I'm getting paid, you mm -hmm. know? And I, I think that in a lot of ways, that's kind of Carpenter's mentality with Halloween mm -hmm. too. I kind of don't want to do this, but if we're going to do this, let's get the gang back together. And guess what guys, we're getting paid mm -hmm. this time. 
Yeah, but I love her performance in H2O, and we'll talk about that when we get to that movie, because we're getting a little bit long in the tooth for the evening here. Um, But what do we, you know, the other thing I really love about this movie is how aggressive the score is to it. That's great. Yeah. It's the original film, but with a a score, but just much beefed up with a lot more synthesizers to it overall. I mean, there are times where I actually prefer the theme to Halloween 2. There are times where I'll throw that in over the original film's theme. Um, I just love that build to it overall. Um, And then it just sounds so powerful. I love it. I I think that Alan Howard's contributions to the series is huge. Mm -hmm. And I I know we're going to have a special episode regarding alan but uh mm-hmm. yeah i i think halloween 2 really shows that really good collaboration that carpenter and howard had for years mm-hmm. yeah i would agree you know as a i'm a musician uh music teacher and um so i really appreciate the scores to uh halloween and halloween 2 uh personally i for me i think the sound of the acoustic piano mm-hmm. in the first movie is is really effective. Something mm-hmm. about that that sound, um, especially uh, there. There's just certain pieces that that generally they they kept it that way for Halloween too. Uh, the the shape lurks or whatever I can't remember the name of it. Just the mm-hmm. dot dot. Mm-hmm. They kept that one with the acoustic piano sound. Um, but overall, I I think you guys are right. I think that what Howarth did to expand the score uh, is really effective. Yeah. Yeah. And it works really well. I think when you add all of those elements in score, having the same creative team, having the same um, acting troupe in there overall, you have the same director of photography. um, All of those things, I think make Halloween to a much more cohesive outing than it could. I mean, when you go back, look at the difference between, say, Texas Chainsaw Massacre 1 and 2, which has the same director. Yeah. Yeah. And, and they don't, they feel like they're in different universes over yeah. Um Look at, you know, Nightmare on Elm Street Part 1 and 2, where the rules of the film completely change at that point. Like, mm-hmm. it doesn't feel like the same movie whatsoever. I mean, Friday the 13th, like, completely. I mean, you go from having like a, a dead kid that is the impetus for the first movie to that dead kid is now the killer in every single movie that follows, save for part and, five. And takes taxis to kill the people. He's, he's getting an Uber with his dead mom's head under his. <laughs> the thing about it in, in with Halloween, if you take Mike Myers out of Halloween, too, it's really interesting. You have a really good hospital drama. You do, yeah, yeah. Well, so, another yeah. thing that's nice about Halloween 2 is that other sequels um, tend not to do. And what you said about Halloween 2 and the taxi made me think of it. It doesn't kill the final girl mm-hmm. at the beginning of, of Halloween 2. We have, point. Yeah, we have Jamie Lee Curtis um, for the whole movie. And though for the first couple sections of it, she's either comatose or sort of, you know, just not not with us, not really with it. Um, when she really gets to do something in that third act, I think she's really great. Mm-hmm. She's mm-hmm. really great. And so having her be, um, be a, the final girl again and to be so strong and powerful at the end is 
is great. I love that about Halloween too. So I think we're all in agreement that the worst thing about this movie is the sister reveal, correct? Yeah. Yes, definitely. Absolutely. So the worst thing about the entire series. So let's say you keep the other 98% of the movie as it is. What would you have done? How would you have gotten Michael and Laurie to face off again? What would have been the, the change you would have made in order to get those two to have that final confrontation? Honestly, I wouldn't have. And that's such a bland answer, I know. Mm-hmm. But, uh, you know, if it was up to me, three would follow the first film. Like, I enjoy two. But I, I, that's, I mean, that's what I love about David Gordon Green's. Like, like we said a couple times, the only reason that they come in contact to each other is either Laurie goes after him, or you know, the crazy doctor drives him there at the end, you know, of, of yeah. David Gordon Green's film. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, you know, you, yeah. Go ahead. No, go ahead. Go ahead, Brian. Well, uh, what I was going to say was, uh, we watched the my son and I watched the David Gordon Green one uh, yesterday, and um, one of the things that I wondered. While while watching it was, does Michael even really recognize Laurie? No. Does he even care that it's her? I mean, not at all. Whereas the doctor seems to insert this idea that is Michael um, being driven by facing her again. Well, we know, I think, that no, he's not. He's he's just there, and people are there, and he's going to kill them because they're there. Mm-hmm. He only goes after her consistently at the very end because she's basically an opponent. She's coming after him, so he's kind exactly. of like, "I'm going to kill her." Mm-hmm. There's no reason yeah. in in 2018's film that he goes after her. I completely agree. Absolutely correct. Yeah, I mean, it's really. I mean, I think you could have gotten away with the second movie. You have a character that has been shot six times. That doesn't change. You could have had him just make his way to the hospital to patch himself up. You know, something simple like that. I mean, a really simple storytelling thing like that. You could have had pretty much the same movie at that point. And Jerry, let me ask you this. Let's say they do. Let's say you switch the order. Let's say you have Halloween 3, Season of the Witch, come out in 1981. Mm-hmm. Are we still talking about the Halloween franchise today? Do you eventually go back to Michael Myers? Does Season of the Witch become successful? I mean, part of the reason that movie might not be successful is it took people by such surprise that Michael Myers wasn't wasn't in it because you don't have the internet. You don't have like not a 24-hour-a-day yeah. film culture where people are obsessed over it. So people might have walked into that movie thinking like they're going to see Michael Myers and then they're completely thrown off at that point. Would you have more anthology films? Do you think you could have no. gotten? Okay. No, I mean, if if Halloween 3 had followed the first film and it was successful, maybe we would have gotten a few more anthology films. But mm-hmm. in no way would it have been the Halloween series that we all love. And, you know, I have my issues with some of the films, but I, I just appreciate the hell out of the fact that they exist. Mm-hmm. You know, I will, I will never be a big fan of Halloween 6, but I'm excited that it exists because mm-hmm. it also helped push the next film forward and then the next film forward. And, you know... While I don't like the sister angle, I mean, we got Halloween four, five, and six out of it, which mm-hmm. eventually yeah. led, you know, years down the road to 2018's film. Right. So, I mean, you know, I, I, I think that as much as I have a distaste for the sister angle, like I said, it moved things forward. So, I mean, I appreciate that aspect of it. Right. It was interesting, and I think that if if 
Halloween 2 doesn't come out when it does, and they do the original idea of having an anthology series. And then not only that, but you don't get Halloween 4, 5, and 6 maybe. You don't have any more films with Michael Myers. I wonder if Carpenter's film is remembered as fondly as it is. If it's not in part remembered as fondly as it is, because everything that came after it never quite got it quite as right again. And it seems like such a simple idea, but no one can quite do what John Carpenter does with it. Take this really easy idea, but create a classic out of it. Well, totally that. And if you think about Halloween or Friday 13th, uh, you know, more specifically two or three or the first Nightmare on Elm Street, if they had just existed on their own, they would have been great movies. But if the rest of the series didn't exist, Michael Myers wouldn't be an iconic Mm-hmm. Villain Freddy Krueger wouldn't have been a conic villain if there was just the first film. Right. You know, even though the sequels were lesser, they made household names out of these characters. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, I I give them nothing but respect because of that. Right. Agreed. Agreed. So, I think that's going to wrap up our talk on Halloween too. So, Brian, you have been contributing to Ghastly Gritting, uh, run by uh, Ryan Larson, one of who's been a guest on our show a couple times now. Uh, mm-hmm. Where can people find your writing and you know your whole journey well, with the genre? Well, there there are um, the the best place to find me to talk movies uh, on Twitter is mm-hmm. Brian D Kuiper. Mm-hmm. Um, and the spelling is weird, so it's Brian with an I, uh, D, and then uh, Kuiper is K-E-I-P-E-R. Mm-hmm. And, um, yeah, so that's that's the best place to find me to talk movies. And um, I've got my – if you look at my profile, you can see where to find me on Letterboxd. Mm-hmm. And, um, and I hope to be able to keep writing reviews for Ghastly Grinning, and we'll see where things go from there. Excellent. And Jerry, you have been crazy busy lately. So, what are some of the writing projects you got working on right now? Where are we going to find you next? I am like currently insanely busy, and while I'm extremely stressed by it, I'm so excited. You know, I, I just uh, interviewed John Carpenter about his new Joker mm-hmm. comic, which was like such a huge thing. Uh, this week, I'm I'm chatting with Joe Hill about his new comic. Uh, you know, I got that. I work on a couple of film projects that I'm so excited about. One of them, I'm I'm writing a feature for a director I really like, but I can't really say mm-hmm. much about that. But uh, yeah, so much is going on. So excited. Uh, but I'm mostly excited about this whole series of shows. So everyone that's listened, thank you so much. Uh, you know, we have a million Halloween episodes coming up. We have so many different awesome guests. Uh, a couple curveballs. That maybe you wouldn't expect to be on the show, but they're going to. Some of them having to do with the music of the series. Mm-hmm. But uh, yeah, I'm excited. Yeah, and we're going to be back next week discussing Halloween Three: Season of the Witch, which I think has kind of gone full circle from being like underappreciated and then got its just due to now maybe we're giving it a little bit too much of a due overall. Like it's getting like too much love overall. Like, all right, let's, let's calm down a little bit now with our love for this movie, but we're going to have, we don't need a 14, 14 in defense of Halloween three articles anymore. Oh no, 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 no. Uh, you know, most underrated movies uh, to watch this Halloween. Like, no, I think it's rated. I think it's it's gone past the point of being rated just right at this point. So, yeah. Um, but we're going to have filmmaker Izzy Lee on to discuss her love of that movie, which I'm really excited about. She's been a good friend of mine for like 
Jesus Christ, 10 years now. So Mm -hmm. we'll be back next week, listeners. We hope you're enjoying what we're doing with the Halloween series. We are knee deep in the spooky season. Like for me, it has been haunted hayrides and corn mazes with the kiddo, but Mm -hmm. I have not been able to get to that one really good, like adult scary haunt. And I'm worried that by the time I have the time to, the season's going to have passed at this point. So I'm hoping to get like, you know, like Sheriff Brackett says, everyone's entitled to one good scare. That's what I'm hoping for the next week. So until then, have a great week, everyone.